Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Two Americans kidnapped in Mexico are back on U.S. soil. Two others are dead. The lead starts right now. A tragic end after a mother's trip to Mexico with friends to get a medical procedure. Now two in the group are dead. Two others found alive. How the group got lost and ended up in the hands of armed criminals. Plus. Since I'm taking over this plane. Taking over this plane, he says. Terrifying moments on a cross-country flight. When a man threatens to hijack the plane, the video as freaked out passengers tried to react. Plus. A not-so-open invitation, CNN's up-close look at the great lengths that Chinese Communist Party will go to control its country's messaging. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead and new details in the investigation into those four Americans kidnapped in Mexico last week. Local officials say one person has been detained after two of the U.S. citizens were found dead in the border town of Matamoros. The two others are thankfully alive, although one is severely injured, according to a U.S. official, and those two have returned to the United States for medical treatment and observation. Family members say that the four were a tight-knit group of friends traveling from South Carolina to Mexico so that one of them could get a medical procedure done across the border. But once they crossed from Texas into Matamoros, friends believe that the group got lost and was then abducted. The Justice Department, White House and State Department say they are working with Mexican officials to find those responsible and also to figure out exactly what went wrong. U.S. official previously told CNN they believe a Mexican cartel likely mistook the four Americans for Haitian drug smugglers. Our reporters are covering every angle of this story. CNN's Rosa Flores starts us off from the border town of Brownsville, Texas, where officials have identified the victims and the survivors. Two of four missing Americans are back in the United States and receiving medical treatment in Texas after being kidnapped in Mexico, after what a U.S. official tells CNN was a case of mistaken identity. Two members of the party were found dead, and one of the survivors is severely injured with a bullet wound to his leg, according to U.S. and Mexican officials. In the party of four, Latavia Washington McGee and Eric Williams survived, Zindel Brown and Shahid Woodward were killed. They crossed the border from Brownsville, Texas, into Matamoros, Mexico, on Friday for McGee to obtain a medical procedure, according to a friend of McGee's. They drove a white minivan with North Carolina plates across the border and got lost while trying to locate the medical clinic where they were headed, the friend told CNN. Before they were able to locate the clinic, disturbing video shows the aftermath of the kidnapping as heavily armed men loaded them into a white truck and transported them to various locations to evade capture, according to Mexican officials. The Mexican president saying today during a news conference that those responsible will be found and punished. A U.S. official familiar with the investigation told CNN they believe a Mexican cartel kidnapped the group after mistaking them for Haitian drug smugglers. Mexico's president saying the Americans were caught in a confrontation between two groups. The State Department has issued its highest level forewarning 
do not travel to Tamaulipas State, where the group was abducted due to heavy crime and kidnapping in the region. There are many people who cross over that border uh, for these medical appointments. Attacks on U.S. citizens are unacceptable, no matter where or under what circumstances they occur. McGee and Williams are now under the care of the FBI, and U.S. officials are making arrangements to bring home the bodies of Brown and Woodard. Our immediate concerns are for the safe return of our citizens. The building that you see behind me is a hospital where we believe that the American survivors are being treated. The hospital is not issuing a statement or reporting their conditions, but we do know from Mexican officials that they are releasing a timeline of this search. They say that they are even releasing photographs of some of the vehicles that were used by kidnappers and that at least one individual, a 24-year-old who was doing some surveillance on the Americans, has been arrested. And Jake, it's important to note that the Mexicans and Mexican officials say that the American law enforcement was not involved during this search. Jake. Mm. All right, Rosa Flores, thank you so much in Brownsville, Texas. Let's bring in CNN security reporter Josh Campbell. And Josh, the Justice Department says that it is working closely with the State Department on this case. What is the role of a investigation into this matter in Mexico? Well, this is an entire whole of government approach is how U.S. officials are describing this. So in the United States Embassy, you have the ambassador, but also in what's called the country team, a host of various different agencies that convene in what's called an emergency action committee. When you, you have a major incident like this, all of those agencies bring to bear certain things like the, uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration, obviously the State Department working the diplomatic angle. And then, of course, the FBI, which, you know, has been involved from the beginning to uh, leverage their intelligence, their human informants, signals intelligence, Working with their uh, close partners there in Mexico, I'm told there are very close relationships between FBI agents and Mexican authorities. And so all of that was being leveraged in order to try to identify where these victims are. It's also worth pointing out that although we are now getting a resolution, a very tragic resolution here to this incident, the investigation is not over. The FBI, Jake, still offering a $50,000 reward leading to the identification and prosecution of these captors. Ultimately, do you think the U.S., assuming that any suspects are captured, do you think the U.S. will request extradition, given that the crimes were committed against Americans? I suspect the request will be made. It's yet to be seen whether uh, Mexican officials will adhere to that. Now, on its face, this appears to be an incident that would fall under the U.S.-Mexico Treaty, where you have the attack of, on Americans, the killing, the murder of Americans. And so that could fall under the, uh, the treaty. But it's worth pointing out, and our colleague Gustavo Valdez has been pointing this out so important, that it wasn't just Americans who were killed in this attack. Of course, there was a 22-year-old girl, a Mexican national, on her way to pick up her child, who was also caught in the crossfire of this car group that my source tells me uh, they thought they were attacking Haitian nationals. They end up killing uh, these two Americans, injuring the others, uh, and then killing this 22-year-old Mexican national. So I think to your question, Jake, Mexican officials could also make a case that, look, we will prosecute this here in our country, still ensuring that justice is served. Uh, But again, I think the discussion about how that will be done will come later. First, the focus now is finding these suspects. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks. Mexico is the second most popular destination for medical tourism globally, according to Patients Without Borders, that's an international healthcare consulting company. That group estimates up to 3 million people travel to Mexico every year to take advantage of inexpensive treatments. Americans can save between 40 and 60 percent on common medical procedures. But of course, they're also taking risks because these clinics are not held to U.S. standards. CNN and Espanol correspondent Gustavo, Gustavo Valdez joins me now. Gustavo, you've been to some of these towns that are designed to draw Americans across the border specifically for medical care. Tell us about that. 
Hey, Jake, uh, every time you cross into Mexico, the very first thing you're more likely to see is either a pharmacy or a clinic offering some kind of service to Americans who are looking for a cheaper option to for healthcare south of the border. Typically in this part of the country, in Mexico, in Tamaulipas, you will find dentist uh, services. That is the most common. The uh, cosmetic surgery, the uh, weight control procedures are typically done in larger cities where they have larger hospitals because they require more uh, care after the treatment. But there is one town in particular in this area on the Tamaulipas border. It's called Nuevo Progreso, where you see rows and rows of buildings. They could be pharmacies. They could be stores selling uh, drugs. They also have clinics that are offering the services. And right now, they're very popular with Americans who spend the winter south in warmer climates. And now they're going back to their homes with Mexican drugs that are cheaper. And Gustavo, what more can you tell us about the town of Matamoros and the surrounding areas? Are they dangerous? They are. For the most part, the attacks like the one we saw are reserved for confrontations amongst the cartels or cartel members. This is the state that is home to the Cartel del Golfo, the Gulf Cartel. So it is a very violent criminal organization. But typically, you see these attacks among themselves. And what you see is collateral damage, like we saw with this woman who was shot in this confrontation with uh, the four Americans. Typically, Americans are safe as long as they are there during the day. Typically, the, the criminal organizations don't want to get into this kind of publicity, but the danger is always there. That's why it is uh, 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 the State Department has the alert to be careful when you cross into Mexico, especially in this part of the, of the country. All right, CNN Espanol correspondent Gustavo Valdez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the video that reveals frightening moments on a plane when a man threatened to take over the flight and what the Ukrainian president told CNN's Wolf Blitzer about Russia's next move if it does manage to capture that strategic town of Bakhmut. Plus, fresh off bowing out of the 2024 presidential race, I'm going to ask former Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland what else he thinks about the possible candidates running. Stay with us. International lead now from forced emergency landings due to birds hitting an engine or unruly passengers threatening violence to airplanes nearly hitting one another on runways. All these tense and often frightening moments involving U.S. airlines are putting America's aviation safety in the spotlight. Here's CNN's Pete Montine. They are among the latest incidents concerning your safety in the sky from unruly passengers. Stop taking over this plane, please. To another near collision on the runway. 2172 going around. American 2172, Roger. The FAA and NTSB just announced they are investigating a February 16th incident at Sarasota Bradenton International Airport in Florida. It is the sixth close call involving commercial airliners at major U.S. airports this year. Investigators say an American Airlines flight was cleared to land on the same runway where an Air Canada Rouge flight was taking off. This system is as stressed as I've ever seen it in my 30-plus years working in the airlines. Dennis Tager represents American Airlines Pilot Union. These incidents, things that we've been talking about well over a year ago, are starting to show up on the flight deck and in operations. Problems extend to passenger cabins, where there's been a second high-profile unruly flyer in as many weeks. This is going to be a bloodbath everywhere. The Justice Department says 33-year-old Francisco Torres was wrestled to the ground Sunday on board a United Airlines flight. A couple of passengers tried to 
talk to him to calm him down. It was only making him more agitated. Lisa Olson recorded the video on the flight from Los Angeles to Boston. Court documents say Torres attempted to open the emergency exit and stab a flight attendant with a metal spoon. The United crew, um, plus all the passengers, being able to act so quickly just was very comforting. Um, I had confidence, complete confidence, that they had everything under control. Passengers say at one point Torres was able to escape his zip ties, Jake, and passengers gathered belts to keep him down. Right now, Torres is being detained pending a court hearing. The number of unruly passenger incidents fell by over half last year. So this is not nearly as big of a deal as it was back in 2021, but we're still seeing these incidents, Jake. And Pete, all these issues are, are I'm sure, going to come up during a hearing on Capitol Hill tomorrow. Tell us about that. The real focus is safety, and the acting administrator of the FAA, Billy Nolan, will be on Capitol Hill tomorrow and facing lawmakers a week ahead of this safety summit that is being held by the FAA. The real focus here is those unsafe runway incursion issues that keep happening over and over again. We just found out about that sixth one that happened back on February 16th. Another problematic issue on America's runways, Jake. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. From military guards to a COVID bubble, see the high-level restrictions put on journalists by the Chinese government as that government tries to keep a tight grip on who reports what. We're back with our world lead and a threat of, quote, catastrophic consequences for, for the United States from a top Chinese Communist Party official today. After a series of high-profile diplomatic squabbles, China's new foreign minister drew a red line with the United States over the issue of Taiwan. And he defended Beijing's relationship with Moscow, Russia. CNN's Selena Wang went to the National People's Congress in Beijing to find obstacles for journalists covering the foreign minister's tightly controlled debut. Thousands of government delegates across China are gathering for the biggest annual political meeting, known as the Two Sessions. It's the first since China abandoned its zero-COVID policy. But reporters covering the event are still stuck in a COVID bubble, required to stay overnight at a quarantine hotel and get an on-site PCR test. We just left the quarantine hotel. We're now headed to the venue. Everything is highly controlled. The foreign media bus gets dropped off at Tiananmen Square. It is very rare for journalists to get access to this. As you can see, though, there's heavy security. There are guards everywhere. Normally, the two sessions is the rare chance for media to get up and close to China's top leadership. Right here on the steps of the Great Hall of the People, this is normally where you will see media trying to doorstop the top leadership. But as you can see, this year, we, the media, were completely separate from the rest of the leaders. The two sessions is a carefully choreographed event. The new government shakeups that the rubber stamp parliament will vote on have one unifying goal, to strengthen Xi Jinping and the ruling Communist Party's power. And the COVID restrictions are the perfect tool for Beijing to control the message. So media has to apply to get access to specific events. We're not granted approval to all of them. And this is the media area inside the Great Hall of the People. As you can see, it's pretty empty. So it's clearly not an issue of capacity. Some of the events during the week-long meeting allow select reporter questions, including Qing Gong's first press conference as China's new foreign minister. 
He said that conflict with the U.S. is inevitable if Washington does not change course. Qing Gong called Washington's approach a reckless gamble, accused the U.S. of creating a crisis over Taiwan defended China's partnership with Russia as imperative and said it has not supplied weapons to Russia or Ukraine. See you at the two sessions. Meanwhile, Chinese state media is portraying the legislative meeting as an open event where journalists can freely operate. Sri Lanka. I'm from Loop News. It's an amazing country. The assemblies also offer journalists the opportunity to put questions to the Chinese premier and ministers. But under these controls, spontaneous run-ins with top leaders like the premier and ministers are out of reach. But after today's meeting ended, we had a few minutes to approach some delegates, which are a curated group of local representatives. This delegate is part of the Zhuang ethnic minority from the southwestern Guangxi province. She says this is her first time attending the Congress, and she feels happy to see her motherland becoming stronger. The rest of the delegates quickly rush out before we have a chance to approach them. The question is how much of these COVID controls will remain in post-pandemic China. It limits access even more to China's already extremely opaque political machine. This much is clear. The communist leadership only wants the world to see one narrative from China. That is the image of unity, strength and victory. Jake, those COVID restrictions were so surprising considering the country has already completely opened up. So it really seems like those COVID controls were really just an excuse to restrict press access. Now, this year's two sessions is significant because it is the first after Xi Jinping secured that precedent-shattering third term as party chief last October. Now, during this political event, he's now set to get an unprecedented third term as president. It is a largely ceremonial title, but it is significant We'll also see a new slate to aid government leaders and institutional reforms made. All of that is going to increase the Communist Party's grip. And Selena, this was the foreign minister's first time front and center like this. What did you make of his comments? Yeah, it's interesting. This was a very fiery and combative press conference. Before this, he was actually the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. He's known as this very accomplished and measured diplomat. So very significant here that he made such strong comments. At one point, he even made a show of reading from a copy of the Constitution of the People's Republic of China to emphasize Beijing's claims that the self-governing democracy of Taiwan is part of its, quote, sacred territory. He also said the Taiwan issue is the bedrock of Sino-U.S. relations and that, quote, the red line that must not be crossed. Now, this press conference came amid reports of a potential meeting between Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in April. Regardless of where that meeting is held, the Financial Times said it could be held in the U.S. This is going to draw the ire of Beijing. It's going to increase already tense relations. Jake. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing, thank you so much. I want to bring in Republican Senator Dan Sullivan uh, of Alaska. We should note, of course, by the way, the Xi Jinping, when he's reelected, it's, it's by the, the National People's Congress. It's not by the, the people the way that we do it here in the United States. Um, Senator, how, how does the United States transition from this increasingly combative relationship with China uh, into, into one that is, is less hostile? And, and what was your reaction to the new foreign minister's comments? Well, I know the foreign minister, and I I think his comments about uh, the United States needing to pump the brakes or there's going to be some kind of conflict. I think China, the Chinese Communist Party, Jake, is the one that needs to pump the brakes. 
Look at what they've done in terms of aggressive actions in the last two years. I mean, obviously the pandemic is a huge issue, but with regard to its neighbors, whether it literally was a shooting war on the border with India, the crushing of any kind of liberty and democracy in Taiwan, the crushing of what's going on with regard to the Uyghurs, um, an economic uh, embargo and coercion against Australia, in the aggressive actions that they take almost daily in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. That's just in the last two years. So right. this is a regime that is showing very aggressive actions to its neighbors and all around the world. And I think if anyone needs to pump the brakes on their actions, it's the Chinese Communist Party, not America. Uh, on the subject of Taiwan, there are reports that Taiwan's president is going to meet with Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in April. Uh, China's foreign ministry have warned McCarthy not to visit Taiwan, so it's possible the meeting might take place in, in California. We don't know. Either way, Beijing is likely going to react. Um, what do you think about McCarthy meeting the president uh, of Taiwan? Um, is, is that appropriate? Uh, do you support it? Uh, we should remind people that... that then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, and that was also considered poking the bear. Well, you remember when Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, I actually led a statement of uh, over 40, I think it was 40 U.S. senators, bipartisan group of senators, that said um, we should support uh, Pelosi's visit. Actually, I'm sorry, on, on Pelosi's visit, it was just Republicans, ironically. I actually think if the Speaker, the number three um, elected official in our government wants to visit Taiwan, that that individual should be able to do so. And we shouldn't let the Chinese Communist Party dictate where elected American officials can travel. You represent Alaska in the Senate. I want to ask you about the Willow Project. Yeah. It's, a, it's a massive decades-long oil drilling venture on federal land in Alaska. The Biden administration is expected to make a decision soon on whether to approve it. You say, quote, almost every Alaskan is unified in support of the Willow Project, especially yeah. the Native people. There are leaders of the Alaska Native community of Nuiqsut who have been vocally opposed to the project. The Native Mo Movement Advocacy Group wrote a letter to the Interior Secretary Holland saying that the community has repeatedly pointed out the, quote, horrendous lack of adequate consultation, the significant impact on the health of Nuiqsut residents, and the imminent detrimental loss of access to food subsistence resources. What is your message to the Nuiqsut residents? Well, Jake, as I've said, the vast majority of the Alaska Native people support it. And um, with regard to certain individuals in Nuiqsut, we've heard, we've heard their concerns, but overall, the majority of the people on the North Slope, the Inupiat people, are very supportive. The Alaska Federation is very supportive. This is something um, that we mentioned to the president in uh, our meeting with him on Thursday. And what's really frustrating for us, and particularly Alaska Native leaders, they were here in force last week in front of the Capitol. We held a press conference. Was this idea that, look, the, the main drivers are shutting down the Willow Project are lower 48 environmental groups. And they like to come up and tell Alaskans, particularly Alaska Natives, how they should be living their lives. A lot of my, uh, a lot of the Alaska Native leaders that I know in our state are starting to call this the second wave of colonialism, eco-colonialism eco from lower 48 environmental groups who don't know anything about Alaska and come up and tell Alaska Natives who've been living in our great state for thousands and thousands of years how to run their lives. So I think the president, this is exactly the kind of project that 
uh, President Biden should be supporting. It's got the highest environmental standards in the world. His own environmental impact statement from his administration said that. If you focus on racial equity, environmental justice, the vast majority of the native people support it. The vast majority of American working um, members, unions, all support it. Every union in mm -hmm. Alaska supports this project. And of course, we're talking about China right now. One of the biggest things Xi Jinping fears is American energy dominance. This is really important for our national security, as well as our domestic uh, energy security and jobs. So we're hopeful that the president is going to finally support this project. It's been in permitting for many, many years, as you mentioned, yeah. and it's got the vast majority of Alaskans. One thing I did, I handed the president a resolution from the Alaska legislature, the House and the Senate, back home. Every member of the legislature signed that resolution. I presented it to the president in the Oval Office, Democrats, Republicans, independents, native, yep. non-native legislators. So it's strongly supported back home in Alaska. One quick question. January 6, 2021 is back in the news because Fox is trying to offer a revisionist theory about what happened. That day you condemned the attack. You called it disgraceful. You said it was a sad day in American history. Um, I wanted to ask you because I just learned a few months ago that Rudy Giuliani called you on January 6 uh, before the vote to certify the election. He left messages on your phone. What, what did he say? Yeah, look, that was in the report, the January 6th report. I was even unaware of that. I, this was a phone call from somebody. I didn't even know who it was. They left a message. I listened to the message a few days later. Ironically, Jake, it was actually for the wrong senator. Uh, Rudy Giuliani had the wrong phone number. <laughs> he, <laughs> I mean, I've never met him. I don't know him. I, you know, he, he was... I mean, I, I barely even understood what he was saying. So to, it was something about, you know, relooking at this. It was, like I said, for another senator, uh, I had listened to it a, a, day, a few days after. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, it was quite bizarre. And um, again, I've, I, I don't even know really Rudy Giuliani. All right. I, I, no, I, it, just, it's, it seemed bizarre. I just wanted to it know was, what the message Trust me. It was... Bizarre, and it, and it was the wrong number, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> All right. Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Thanks, Jake. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan says he won't run for president, blaming a crowded Republican field, among other reasons. So who else might need to step aside? Hogan will tell me when he joins us next. Stay with us. In our Politics Lead, a possible dress rehearsal for a potential White House run. Today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis delivered his State of the State address. It was noticeably short on his trademark anti-woke rhetoric, but his closing statement was perhaps a message to both the Florida legislature and Florida voters, as well as Republican voters in the 2024 presidential race. Don't worry about the chattering class. Ignore all the background noise. Keep the compass set to true north. We will stand strong. We will hold the line. We won't back down. And I can promise you this, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yes. Thank you all. To talk about Governor DeSantis and other possible presidential candidates in 2024, we're joined now by Maryland former Governor Larry Hogan. Uh, who just announced that he is not going to run 
uh, for president. Uh, Governor Hogan, good to see you. When you released your statement on your decision to not run in 2024, you said, among other things, quote, there are several competent Republican leaders who have the potential to step up and lead. You also criticized, quote, many in the Republican Party who falsely believe that the best way to reach these voters, MAGA voters, is through more angry performative politics. So that's two distinct groups of 2024 candidates. I'm wondering which group you think Governor DeSantis is in. Well, you know, I don't want to characterize where Governor DeSantis is, but I think, you know, there are certainly people that are focused on, uh, you know, trying to drive a message that they think will be helpful in a Republican primary that I'm not sure is the right way to, you know, to try to appeal to a general election you know, swing voters that we've been doing a terrible job of reaching and uh, the folks that I've been focused on for the past eight years. Your reasoning for not running in 2024 is you want to move on from Trump. You want the party to move on from Trump. And you believe the bigger the GOP field, uh, the better the chances that Trump has of, of winning the nomination, uh, the multi-car pileup you, you referred to uh, in 2016. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson uh, is also weighing a 2024 run. He seems to take a different view than you. Take a listen. I actually uh, think that more voices right now in opposition or providing an alternative to Donald Trump is the best thing in the right direction. This is not 2016. Donald Trump is a known quantity. Uh, he makes his message of revenge clear. He seems to think that, that uh, the more the merrier, uh, the, the more people criticizing Trump, uh, the more effective it will be to get rid of him. Uh, in the process. You, you disagree? Well, no, I don't disagree at all. I, I mean, as you know, Jake, I've been one of the few people that have been speaking out against Trump uh, for many, many years. And I'm very pleased that there are now finally others that are showing the courage to stand up and speak out. I mean, some of them were saying it privately before, but I think it's great that more voices are saying we should move on from Donald Trump. Um, I just don't think they all need to be candidates for president. And we, you know, we, we can you know, I, I believe that, uh, you know, there's a certain lane and there's a certain ability if we can find the right candidate to overcome uh, the, the, the current numbers and the splits in the party. But it, it can't be occupied by, you know, a whole group of people. There's just there's room for there's a narrow lane, uh, but it can't fit a whole uh, crowd of folks. I want to get your thoughts on another Republican governor whose name has been floated as a possible presidential candidate, uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. Um, unlike DeSantis, uh, he does not appear to be as well positioned to threaten Trump's hold on the non-college Republicans who have been uh, most receptive to Trump's style. Um, do you think he should follow your lead uh, and refrain from running so as to avoid this multi-car pileup, or would you like to see him run? Well, I think every everybody uh, needs to make that decision for themselves. And, you know, the multi-car pileup was only one of the Many reasons. I mean, I really gave it a lot of serious consideration, and uh, some of it were, was personal. Just left it all on the field. Uh, eight years of being one of the most successful governors in the country. It was about whether I wanted to put my my family through a grueling campaign. But part of it was, you know, I, I really wanted to put the best interests of the party and the country ahead of my own personal interests. But each of the potential candidates has a right to, if they believe they've got what it takes, then they ought to give serious consideration to running. But I don't think people ought to jump into the race just to make a name for themselves or to earn a cabinet position or to, to get a book deal. They ought to run only if they believe that they have a chance of winning the nomination and becoming president. And I think, you know, while I'd encourage people not to have a huge crowded field, I think people ought to make their own mind up about. Uh, and I think more voices in the debate and more people talking about moving in a different direction is probably good. 
Meanwhile, Axios is reporting that Trump is strongly considering picking a female running mate uh, early. Uh, and his topic is reportedly failed Arizona governor, uh, Carrie, governor candidate Carrie Lake. Um, Carrie Lake, of course, a notorious election denier, uh, lied about a lot of things, including the election, but that's just one of them. Uh, followed by, on Trump's list, uh, Nikki Haley, Arkansas Governor Sarah Sanders, uh, and South Dakota Governor Christy Nome. What do you think of this idea of him picking a, a female vice presidential candidate uh, and doing so early? Well, I don't know whether that's what he's considering or not, but it's certainly you know, not a bad idea to consider picking a woman. And um, I can see the logic behind picking somebody early, but uh, having somebody like uh, Carrie Lake uh, would be an absolute disaster. I mean, it may actually uh, help uh, him solidify the MAGA base, but that would be a uh, Republicans would be losing every purple state and every competitive state across the country. It would be a disaster for the party. Well, perhaps they can bond over the fact that they both lost Arizona. Yeah. Um, this weekend saw dueling speeches from Trump and DeSantis. Trump's message was, I am your retribution. Uh, the message, um, who as of right now, according to polls, Don, uh, Ron DeSantis poses the biggest threat to Trump. He seems more focused uh, on a strategic war on wokeism and for conservative values. Do you think that DeSantis might be a strong enough candidate with a strong enough message to, to deny Trump the nomination? Well, you know, it's hard to tell. We, we're going to have to wait and see uh, how this plays out. I mean, people have to get on the field and actually play the game, and we have to see what skills he has if he does get in the race. Uh, right now, they're both trying to fight for that same uh, slice of the MAGA base, which is a big chunk of the party. But there are an awful lot of people that still are willing to go in a different direction. And, Jake, I would just say that usually a year out from the first primary, uh, all, whoever the, the, all of us are talking about as the next potential guy rarely ever wins. So somebody we're not thinking about right now might have the opportunity to move up. And, you know, I think everybody, Governor DeSantis certainly has a right to get out there and make the case he wants. And he's fighting for that Trump base. But I think uh, it's far too early to, uh, you know, anoint a winner or to, you know, have a coronation. Yeah, you're referring to former presidents Jeb Bush and Scott Walker and Tim Pawlenty on Earth 2 somewhere, perhaps. There's quite a few. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this, at this time in 2015, uh, Jeb Bush was going to be the nominee and Donald Trump was at less than 1%. So you just never know how this thing is going to play out. We've got to run the race. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, good to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up, what the Ukrainian president fears may be Russia's next move against his country. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead in an intensifying urban fight for Ukraine's eastern city of Bakhmut. Russian Wagner mercenaries are pressing Ukrainian defenders from nearly every side there, while U.S. officials say Russia's capture of Bakhmut would largely be symbolic. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky tells our own Wolf Blitzer that that's not the full picture, however. Take a listen. Why have you decided not to withdraw from Bakhmut? We understand what Russia wants to achieve there. Russia needs at least some victory, a small victory, even even by ruining everything in Bakhmut, just killing every civilian there. They need to put their little flag on top of that to show their society. Uh, 
it's not a victory for them. It's more like, you know, like to support, uh, to mobilize their society uh, in order to uh, create this idea of that such a powerful army. For us, it's such a different. This is tactical for us. We understand that after Bakhmut, they could go further. They could go to Kramatorsk, uh, to Slavyansk. It would be an open road for the Russians after Bakhmut to other towns in Ukraine, in the Donetsk um, direction, uh, in the east of Ukraine. That's why our guys uh, are standing there. You can catch Wolf's interview with Volodymyr Zelensky tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. But first, CNN's Alex Marquardt is live for us in eastern Ukraine. And Alex, Bakhmut has been a huge focus, but of course there's so much more at stake. Yeah, Jake, it's really interesting to hear President Zelensky talk like that, say what a tactical fight this is for the city of Bakhmut, why it's so strategic, because we have started to hear Ukrainian and U.S. officials essentially downplay how significant a victory would be for Russia uh, in Bakhmut. President Zelensky is saying here that Russia would use it as a jumping off point to attack other cities in eastern Ukraine. That's exactly what we have heard from Ukrainian forces who we've been speaking to on the front lines. They fear uh, that, you, that Russia would continue to push westwards, uh, while uh, you have a lot of officials and analysts saying that they wouldn't be able to. Uh, we do expect Ukrainian forces to dig in west of Bakhmut if uh, they were to lose the city. So there would be a lot of officials, military commanders and military analysts who uh, might take uh, who would quibble with President Zelensky saying there uh, that there would be an open road. But no doubt uh, that Ukraine has been very successful at, at, at degrading those Russian forces. Uh, NATO has estimated that for every Ukrainian uh, troop that has been lost, that five Russian forces uh, have been lost. And so this fight is far from over, uh, but, and Ukrainian forces continue to stand their ground. But no doubt, if Russia were to take Bakhmut, it would be a significant victory for Russia. Alex Marquardt in eastern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, the strong words Republican lawmakers use today to describe the selected January 6, 2021 footage that aired on Fox last night. I'm going to speak with an officer attacked that day as he still tries to combat this false narrative that led to the Capitol riot. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it was a field of dreams for many, but was it also a field of death? The hidden dangers found lurking in the AstroTurf at the old Phillies and Eagles Veterans Stadium and why your kids might be playing on turf with the same dangerous chemicals. Plus, A new abortion battle heads to the courts as five women sue the state of Texas over the state's controversial six-week abortion ban. We'll hear from one of the plaintiffs. And leading this hour, misleading and offensive. That is how the Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger described the presentation of footage from the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol on Fox last night. Today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, sided with the police chief's assessment. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. On the other side of the Capitol, however, it was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, 
who gave Fox exclusive access to 40,000 plus hours of security footage from that day. Yes, Fox, the very channel whose executives and hosts have recently been revealed in a deposition to have knowingly presented lies to their viewers about the 2020 election, lies that inspired the very same assault on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Now, the Capitol Police Chief says the channel conveniently cherry-picked video showing calmer moments during the insurrection, showing, for instance, video of rioter Jacob Chansley, known as the QAnon shaman, walking through the Capitol, not receiving pushback from police in those moments. This was presented without the fuller context, as if this video of how Chansley actually got into the Capitol building did not exist. It was not aired. In court documents, of course, prosecutors say that officers tried repeatedly to get the shaman to leave the Capitol. And he, of course, ultimately pleaded guilty to felony charges related to his activities on January 6th. Now, Fox claimed these small snippets of video prove that Democrats and others on the January 6th committee have been lying to the American people about what happened on that day, that very little about the attack was violent, Fox claims. Here's how Republicans who were actually in the Capitol on that day described what happened inside the Capitol during the insurrection. Again, these are Republicans. I mean, this is insane. I mean, I've I've not seen anything like this since I deployed to Iraq in 2007 and 2008. I mean, this is America, and this is what's happening. Madam Speaker, today the People's House was attacked, which is an attack on the Republic itself. There is no excuse for it. A woman died, and people need to go to jail. To those who wreaked havoc in our capital today, you did not win. Violence never wins. So here are some of the things we know to be true about January 6th. Fact, Fox was given access to more than 40,000 hours of Capitol security footage by Speaker McCarthy. CNN and other media organizations such as ABC News or Gannett, which owns USA Today, or CBS News or the Los Angeles Times, among them, We have also requested access to the same footage. As of now, we have not gotten that access. McCarthy's office say they're still working on it. Another fact, this move comes at the same time that Fox is being sued by Dominion Voting Systems for repeatedly lying about its company and airing lies about the 2020 election results. Those lies resulted in the January 6th Capitol attacks. As part of that trial, Rupert Murdoch, the chair of Fox, admitted under oath that some Fox guests and some Fox hosts lied about the 2020 election on the air. And we know from the evidence presented by Dominion that hosts texted each other about various liars whose deranged nonsense they covered and in some cases platformed. Sidney Powell is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy Giuliani, wrote one of those hosts. But none of that stopped Fox from feeling hours of airtime elevating these false conspiracy theories about the election. Now, in his deposition, Chairman Rupert Murdoch, when asked if he seriously doubted the claims of massive election fraud by Trump and his allies, Murdoch responded, oh, yes. And he later said it under oath. I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight. That's the channel, the network that McCarthy handed over all this footage to or gave access to all this footage. Here's another fact. Fox used the footage given to them exclusively by Speaker McCarthy to frame a description of the events of January 6th, where they say very little was organized and very little was violent, where the phrase, in their view, deadly insurrection was a lie. 
Deadly insurrection, they say, every part of that was a lie. Keep in mind, four Trump supporters died that day. One of them was shot by Capitol policemen as she tried to climb through a window to get into the House chamber where police were trying to evacuate lawmakers, including Republicans, from the unruly mob. Now, Donald Trump immediately said after this Fox presentation that the special shows all the January 6th defendants should be freed. All the prisoners, let the January 6th prisoners go, he said. Now, all of this alternate theory of what happened that day contradicts law enforcement, contradicts people who were there that day, contradicts Capitol Police officers, contradicts bipartisan members of the January 6th Select Committee, and contradicts congressional Republicans. But, you know, don't take my word for it. They tried to hunt down the Speaker of the House. They built a gallows and chanted about murdering the Vice President. Terrorists, not patriots, literally occupied the floor of the House. It was a riot. It was a dangerous riot. It was a violent riot. Law enforcement agents were attacked and seriously injured. I was electrocuted again and again and again. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. They were, you know, they had, I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. This morning, I reached out to Speaker McCarthy's office and I asked four simple questions. Does the Speaker of the House agree with Fox's conclusion that everything about the phrase deadly insurrection is a lie? Does the Speaker of the House agree that very little about January 6th was organized or violent? Does the Speaker of the House agree that members of the January 6th Select House Committee lied about what was on the security footage? And does the Speaker of the House agree that, quote, the 2020 election was a grave betrayal of democracy, unquote? So far, Speaker McCarthy has not responded. One does wonder how much facts matter to him. This campaign to belittle what happened on January 6th, 2021, was also done in service of the continued argument that 2020 election was a grave betrayal of American democracy. So how are congressional Republicans reacting today to Fox's airing of January 6th footage last night as they did? Well, let's take a listen. Yeah, Tucker Carlson got this security footage from Speaker McCarthy and really started to downplay January 6th, said it was, you know, mostly peaceful chaos in his view and said it was not an insurrection, said that Brian Sicknick's death was not related to January 6th. How do you feel about that? I think it's bullshit. I was here. I was down there. And I saw maybe a few tourists, a few people who got caught up in things, but when you see police barricades breached, when you see police officers assaulted, all of that, or you had to be in close proximity to it. I just don't think it's helpful. CNN's Manu Raju joins us now from Capitol Hill. And, and Manu, you've been uh, talking to both Republicans all day, uh, getting their reaction to Fox's airing of security footage last night. What are they telling you? Yeah, they are uh, making it very clear that they sharply disagree with the whitewashing of events here. They lived through what happened. They saw what happened. They've seen the investigations, and they know how deadly the violence was. Many of them, they all had to uh, to leave the Senate in a hurry to secure locations, and we saw deadly violence occur that day at the hands of Donald Trump supporters. And it wasn't just moderate Republicans who broke from Tucker Carlson's portrayal of it. It was leaders like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, but it was also rank-and-file members, including some conservatives like Kevin Kramer of North Dakota. 
breaking through glass windows and doors to get into the United States Capitol against the orders of police is, is a crime. When you come into the chambers, when you start opening members' desks, when you stand up in their balcony, to, to somehow put that in the same category as a you know permitted peaceful protest is um, is just a lie. I mean, I think it was a uh, yeah. It was an attack on the Capitol. There were, yeah, there were a lot of people uh, in the Capitol at the time who uh, I think um, were scared for their lives. I thought it was an insurrection at that time. I still think it was an insurrection today. And Mitt Romney told me that he believed that the giving Tucker Carlson the security footage and the way that Carlson portrayed it was, quote, disgusting and dangerous. And he also said it was a mistake for McCarthy to give that footage to Tucker Carlson. No word yet from McCarthy himself. We approached him in the Capitol today, Jake, and he said he would answer questions later today about all this. So we'll see what he has to say. But didn't he say that last week, too, Manu? Didn't he say he was going to take questions last week and he never took questions? He, he did on one day in the Capitol. The next day he answered a question so we'll see what he does okay tonight, well let's see what he does Manu Raju on Capitol Hill thank you joining us now to discuss two people that were there that day former congressman and January 6th committee member Republican Adam Kinzinger he's also the honorary chair of the country first pack and we have with us former DC metropolitan police officer Michael Fanone who was injured during the January 6th insurrection uh, congressman Kinzinger let me start with you last night when airing the security footage Tucker Carlson called you a liar he said you and Liz Cheney lied about what happened during the January 6th Capitol attack and, quote, you should never be taken seriously again, unquote. I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to that. I mean, look, Tucker knows better. Uh, he's actually a smart guy. He is taking the people he's talking to. He's lying to them. I mean, there's no doubt. It's basically been admitted in these court documents with the Dominion suit, but he doesn't care because he wants people's money. He is an unserious man who is doing serious damage with the cooperation of Kevin McCarthy, who wants to have Tucker Carlson on his speed dial because he likes to impress people in the room with who's on his speed dial. This is dangerous. And, uh, you know, Michael Fanone will tell you about how all dangerous that was because it was it was a really bad day that is being whitewashed. But the kids of the people that believe that somehow that wasn't an insurrection, they're going to they're going to know better. And the parents will never admit they ever believed it in the first place. Officer Fanone, uh, Fox last night aired this never before seen video uh, that they said showed U.S. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who we should know died um, one day after the Capitol attack, appearing to give instructions to rioters in the area. We, we do see Sicknick waving his arms, which Fox says shows Sicknick looking healthy and vigorous. And therefore, they said it, it's hard to imagine he died because of the Capitol attacks. We also do have video in which we see Officer Sicknick being sprayed with pepper spray uh, from a rioter, and you can later see him crouching down trying to recover in the aftermath. The D.C. medical examiner, uh, we should note, uh, say that he died of natural causes, but all that transpired that day played a role uh, in his death. Um, What do you think of how Brian Sicknick's uh, death was discussed last night? I know his family has been pushing back a bit. I mean, it was outrageous. Um, it was outrageous that Tucker Carlson would use footage uh, from a fallen police officer's last moments uh, to disparage the officer, to disparage and discredit law enforcement's response that day, uh, and to uh, disparage the mem- the family members, the survivors. 
So, Congressman Kinzinger, um, one of the clips uh, played last night showed uh, the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, walking through the Capitol. Um, and it's true that the, the video shows that he's, there's no pushback going on. Uh, nobody's instructing him or yelling at him. There's no audio in the video, so we don't know if the officers are talking to him. Now, that does, uh, the, I mean, that, I guess the narrative is obviously much more com- complicated than either side would, would have it be. But prosecutors have said Chansley... Uh, disobeyed request from police to leave the building. We saw him, how he got into the building. What did you, what did you make of this? Yeah, I mean, this is what Tucker's doing. He's creating straw men. So uh, as Spinone will tell you better, because he knows the techniques and, and procedures involved in this, they were trying not to escalate with the rioters because if they escalate with the rioters, people are going to die, including police officers. They had no way to arrest people and take them to jail because they were surrounded. The Capitol was surrounded so what Tucker has done is taken moments, claimed like, for instance, a sickness death. It's like, hey, there's Brian Sicknick. Therefore, he didn't die. Nobody has argued. Nobody has said that he died on that day. Everybody has said he died the next day in relation to that. But he pretends to his audience like somehow the committee said it happened on the 6th and we were lying. He creates straw man, refutes the straw man, and it's a complete lie to his audience. And we could go on forever about it. But I mean, look, the police were scared of escalation because they were outnumbered a gajillion to one. So I don't know exactly what the deal was that Speaker McCarthy cut with Congressman Matt Gates and others who were objecting to his being speaker. But apparently part of it, according to Gates, was releasing uh, as much of the, the CCTV footage, the, the security footage, as possible from that day. And as a journalist, I'm all in favor of transparency. I, I think that's a good thing. Obviously, we don't want to reveal... Uh, anything that could put anybody in, har- in, in put them in jeopardy in terms of secret passages or whatever in the Capitol. But obviously more transparency is good. But Officer Fanon, I wonder what you make of the decision by Speaker McCarthy to give the footage exclusively to Fox. Well, first, I, I want to point out a huge distinction between somebody like yourself, Jake, and someone like Tucker Carlson. Uh, you know, by company's own admission, Tucker Carlson is an entertainer while you're a journalist. Um, That being said, you know, if there's one thing that Kevin McCarthy has proven is that he is Donald Trump's useful idiot. Uh, He, you know, he proved it when he went down to Mar-a-Lago with a jar full of Starburst, and he's proving it again by, you know, essentially handing over 40,000 hours of security footage from inside the Capitol, unvetted uh, by, you know, Capitol Police's own admission. Uh, to a propagandist and an entertainer like Tucker Carlson for the sole purpose of creating an alternative narrative to January 6th to best serve uh, Donald Trump and uh, and those that would make money uh, off of Donald Trump's grift. Congressman, I want to break down some statistics. 999 people are facing federal or local charges related to the January 6th attack. 326 of them have been charged with assault or resisting or impeding officers or employees. 140 officers were assaulted at the Capitol that day. 518 people have been charged uh, and pleaded guilty. How can Fox really try to paint this as uh, largely peaceful, uh, filled with sightseers? Obviously, not every single person in the building uh, I don't even know numerically what the percentage would be, but obviously no one's saying everyone was violent, but but the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah, here's how Fox does it, because and particularly Tucker, because they realize that no matter what they say, their audience is vested in that tribal narrative. 
That audience is invested in the fact because they've been programmed by Tucker Carlson for many years. They've been invested in the fact that you have to pick your side and stick with it, no matter what the cost is, suspend your belief, suspend your disbelief. Just, you know, trust us. We're going to tell you, we're going to give you the talking points and the arguments. Fox knows that's not true. Tucker knows it's not true. And you can see it all throughout the Dominion lawsuit. But has Fox News talked about the Dominion lawsuit? I'm going to guess probably not. Has Fox News told their own audience that they were lying to them? Probably not. They just keep them hooked, give them a bigger dopamine rush, give them more of that hit. And uh, and that's how it goes. I think it's not just Fox that hasn't covered the Dominion lawsuit. I think the New York Post hasn't covered it. I think a, a, there's been a lot of conservative media that hasn't covered it uh, at all. Uh, Michael Fanone and Adam Kinzinger, thank you. And, and uh, you know, I know it probably is pretty upsetting personally to have been there. And in your case, uh, Officer Fanone, to have been physically harmed severely and see this entire presentation pretending that this didn't happen. Uh, and I want you to know, we see you. We know it happened. Uh, and I don't know what to say about this, except I'm sorry. Coming up, we're going to talk to one woman who lost her pregnancy at just four months, then almost lost her own life. Now she's one of five women suing Texas over the state's abortion law. Then new developments about the four Americans kidnapped in Mexico. Tragically, two are dead. Two are back in the United States. Are investigators any closer to finding those responsible? Stay with us. In our health lead, a new front in the legal fight over abortion. Five women have sued the state of Texas, claiming that the state's abortion ban after six weeks posed significant risks to their health. The women say uncertainty around the medical emergency exemptions in Texas's six-week abortion ban put their lives and their fertility in danger. CNN's Sunland Serfati hears from one of the women suing Texas. Amanda and Josh Zorowski were thrilled last year to tell family and friends that after years of trying, Amanda was finally pregnant. Then, four months into her pregnancy, her water broke. You're 100% for sure going to lose your baby. We just kept asking, isn't there anything we can do? Isn't there anything we can do? And the answer was no. But doctors in Texas said they couldn't do an abortion. Amanda became septic, needed a blood transfusion. Her family flew in because they feared she would die. Amanda lost her baby but survived and is now the lead plaintiff in a lawsuit filed Monday in a Texas court against the state and the Texas Medical Board. Because abortion is a crime in Texas, punishable by up to 99 years in prison. What the law is forcing physicians to do is weigh these very real threats of criminal prosecution against the health and well-being of their patients. Amanda and four other Texas women and two doctors are asking the court to clarify that abortions can be performed when a physician makes a good faith judgment and that the pregnant person has a physical emergent medical condition that poses a risk of death or a risk to their health, including their fertility. It's particularly unusual for people to be willing to bring these lawsuits in their own names and not to use a pseudonym and to really share these personal details about their lives. Another new front, a battle between Walgreens and California Governor Gavin Newsom. Last month, attorneys general from 21 states that have passed anti-abortion laws wrote to Walgreens about sending abortion pills through the mail. 
Walgreens says they won't distribute abortion medication in those states, saying in this letter to the Kansas Attorney General that Walgreens does not intend to ship mifepristone into your state. Newsom countered with a tweet, California won't be doing business with Walgreens or any company that cowers to the extremists and puts women's lives at risk. He didn't specify what business his state has with a drugstore chain. Mifepristone is also used in miscarriages. Not to stock this medication in particular states really is most likely to harm those patients who would benefit from being able to use the medication for miscarriage, where it's perfectly legal. Back in Texas, Zorowski mourns the loss of her daughter, her ashes in this necklace. I needed an abortion to protect my life and to protect the lives of my future babies that I dream and hope I can still have someday. Because of the scarring in her uterus from the infection, she may not be able to have more children. She's starting fertility treatments in the hope of one day having the baby she and her husband have dreamed of. And CNN has reached out to all the defendants in the Texas case. A spokesperson for the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, says that he is, quote, committed to doing everything in his power to protect mothers, family, and unborn children. And he will continue to defend and enforce the laws duly enacted by this Texas legislator. And we have not heard back from the other defendants nor the Texas governor, Greg Abbott. All right, Sondland Serfati, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the new details coming in on those two Americans back on U.S. soil after being kidnapped in Mexico and tragically the two others from their group who are now dead. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead now. Two of the U.S. citizens kidnapped in Mexico have been found alive, and we are told they are recovering in a Texas hospital right now. But tragically, the other two abducted Americans were killed when their group traveled into the border town of Matamoros, Mexico. Family members say the group crossed the border so one of them could get a medical procedure. As CNN's Josh Campbell reports, it appears that the group may have gotten lost and they were mistaken for drug runners by a local Mexican cartel. We extend our deepest condolences to the family and loved ones of the deceased. The search for four Americans kidnapped in Mexico ending in tragedy. All four have been located, but only two of them alive. The two survivors uh, have since been repatriated back to the United States. Uh, that occurred with the assistance uh, of our Mexican partner- partners, with the assistance uh, of our officials uh, in Mexico. Uh, We are in the process of working to repatriate the remains uh, of the two Americans who were killed in this incident. They have been identified as Latavia Tay Washington McGee, Eric Williams, Zendel Brown, and Shaid Woodard. Washington McGee and Williams have survived the incident, while Woodard and Brown did not. Washington McGee was found uninjured and Williams reportedly shot in the leg. The two survivors are now back in the U.S. receiving medical care. We condemn what happened and feel sorry for the loss. Today, the Mexican government speaking about the tragedy. The victims were found in a wooden house three days after the crime. The four persons who were kidnapped were taken to different places, one of them to a clinic, in an effort to make this more confusing and avoid rescue. The investigation is ongoing to find who is responsible. Mexican authorities will process the bodies of the two dead victims before returning them to the United States. Family members tell CNN the group of friends traveled by car from South Carolina so one of them, a mother of six, could undergo a medical procedure. 
Investigators believe that after they crossed the border from Texas and entered the city of Matamoros, they came under gunfire and crashed their minivan, according to a U.S. official familiar with the investigation. Terrifying video appears to show one of those Americans being shoved into the bed of a pickup truck at gunpoint in broad daylight and taken from the scene. One person has been detained. It seems to be that there was a confusion of mistaken identity, but the investigation is still ongoing. Now, Jake, although the recovery phase of this terrible episode is over, that investigation is ongoing. And sources tell me that those two surviving American victims will be key witnesses for the team of FBI agents, U.S. federal law enforcement and their Mexican counterparts as they work to locate those responsible, Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. In the backdrop of this tragedy is organized crime in Mexico. CNN's David Culver went to Mexico's state of Sinaloa, one of the many spots where fentanyl is produced on a high scale. Sinaloa was once home to drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman and where cartels continue to run rampant today. David Culver joins me on the U.S. side of the border. David, you went to Sinaloa to trace how fentanyl ends up in the United States. Tell us what you found. Jake, you really get a sense from our reporting down there just how prolific this is, the spread of fentanyl, and how difficult it is to track down. Now, you mentioned the organized crime aspect. You mentioned cartels. That's exactly what we stepped into in the state of Sinaloa in Culiacan, the city that we went to. Let me show you from above what we had to travel in. Uh, This is part of an embed with the Mexican army. And you can see it's a convoy of six armored vehicles as they took us through not only the city of Culiacan to patrol and see if they could track down some of the fentanyl labs that have been popping up as they compare it to basically a game of whack-a-mole. I mean, one pops up uh, so quickly that it's very difficult to really stop the spread of these labs. And from inside the vehicle, we, we were talking to one of the colonels who's been working drug bus for 35 years. He's dealt with cocaine, heroin, meth. He says fentanyl surpasses them all in the difficulty in stopping its spread. And we went to one of those fentanyls, and this is why it's so challenging, Jake. It's basically a house that you're looking at. And it's not even the entirety of the house that is a fentanyl lab, but really a small room. So you compare that to, say, a meth lab, and those are rather sprawling. They need more infrastructure. They need to be near water. A fentanyl lab can be done, really, as the colonel put it, just in a closet. And it can produce a significant amount of pills. In fact, the house that we went there, the small room produced 270,000 pills in the bus that they made. So it is a huge challenge and one that tonight we hope to give you more insight on as we show you how this is an international blame game involving Mexico and China, Jake. That's right. And it ends up too often with dead American kids. David Culver, thanks so much. Uh, You can see more of what David uncovered in a special CNN town hall tonight. America addicted the fentanyl crisis. That's tonight at nine only here on CNN. With us now, Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez. He represents Texas's 23rd district, which stretches along the U.S.-Mexico border. He's also a member of the House Homeland Security Committee. Congressman, always good to see you. As we just heard, the problem of fentanyl coming, fentanyl coming across the southern U.S. border is pervasive. We should point out most of it is done by U.S. citizens at points of entry. Uh, Americans driving their cars legally into the United States and not disclosing, obviously, all the illegal drugs in their trunk. What can be done about it? Jake, thank you for having me. You know, I represent 42% of the southern border, 823 miles, and we're at war, and, and I've seen it firsthand. You know, to, right now, I mean, let this sink in. Drug cartels just killed two Americans in broad daylight. 
This is what terrorism looks like. I've got a bill, the Security First Act, that labels cartels as terrorists. It's time we do that. I'd also say all Americans should be in, in support of keeping these bad actors out and making sure things are safe. At the same breath, all Americans should be in support of finding a uh, immigration reform op option that, that focuses on legal immigration. I think this is something that, that we, can, we can solve. It starts in Congress. We need, we need the White House's help. The reality is on the border, it is pure hell. I want to get to the immigration reform uh, aspect of this in a second, but to, to talk about right now that the two Americans uh, who were kidnapped in Mexico that are now sadly dead, there was also a Mexican national, a 22-year-old mom, uh, who was also killed in the crossfire. The other two Americans have been returned to the U.S. This does appear, this doesn't make it any better, but this does appear to be a case of mistaken identity. They were confused by the cartels to be competing drug smugglers from Haiti. Um, how dangerous is it for U.S. citizens to visit Mexico, especially areas like this. You know, the tough, the tough part, uh, Jake, I represent a lot of communities along the border, like El Paso, that is a, a sister city with Juarez, Eagle Pass, it's a sister city with Piedras Negras, and in many cases, it is safe. In many cases, you have U.S. citizens traveling back and forth on a regular basis because ultimately they are one community. But at the end of the day, this is, this uh, border crisis is spreading. I was just uh, in Uvalde. You know what happened in Uvalde 10 months ago, just about 10 months ago. I was speaking with a very prominent figure. I won't say his name, but he told me a story on Saturday. He, was, he had his granddaughter over for the weekend, and his wife was bathing her in the bathtub. And, and someone broke in, an illegal alien broke into their bathtub. He held him at gunpoint until the, the authorities were able to arrive. What I'm getting at is things are getting more and more dangerous. It, it is safe in some places, but many people along the border do not feel safe. we got to stop with the rhetoric, and we got to have tangible solutions that keeps people safe, the bad actors out, and also welcomes those that want to come and work and live the American dream. We can accomplish that if we work in a bipartisan manner. The Americans who went into Mexico did so for medical procedures. What advice would you give American citizens who are considering doing the same thing for this medical tourism? I mean, the, the reality is Americans, because of the cost of health care, are, are having to travel into Mexico every single day. Veterans are having to do that. So this is an area where, you know, if folks are going to travel, they need to be safe about it. They need to make sure that they know where they're going. But once again, uh, not everywhere is a war zone, but in some cases, it is absolutely hell. The fentanyl that is killing our kids, we have to push back against that. I'd say, you know, a, a, a lot of times there's more to the story. Go to our website, TonyGonzalezForCongress.com, and learn more more about what's happening on the border. So, Congressman, obviously the bipartisan immigration reform you're talking about is an important component about this. The immigration system is broken. Um, how do you get Republicans in the House who control the House to work with Democrats so that they can be there can be a bipartisan compromise bill that the Senate, which is controlled by Democrats, will pass and, and the president, who's a Democrat, will sign. How, how do you do that? There doesn't seem to be a lot of incentive right now for House Republicans to work across the aisle. Look, politically, you take a lot of risk, but you have to be bold and you need leadership. I host on Monday, I hosted my 16th congressional delegation at the border. We went to Uvalde, we went to Eagle Pass. We, we listened to Republicans and Democrats, both border security and immigration reform, over 100 members of Congress. So that's what I'm doing in the House. I also work in a bipartisan manner there. I've also had discussions with senators, uh, Republican and Democrat senators. I've also had very high level discussions with the White House. So to your point, there is an opportunity 
opportunity here, Jake, where we can come with a solution that both solves the border and also uh, welcomes those that want to come through and, and have work visas and others. Nobody wants to put their, their political uh, life on the line, if you will, but this is an important topic. You mentioned earlier fentanyl is killing our kids, yeah. not Democrat kids, our kids, period. Right. But I mean, just you know this as well as I do. Uh, the Republican Party of Texas voted on Saturday to censure you for, even though you're a very reliable conservative vote, you don't always vote along party lines. Uh, practically, that decision, that censure means they're not going financial to support, financially support you in the next primary. I mean, how can there be any incentive for there to be bipartisan work if the Republican Party of Texas is, is censuring somebody who is as conservative as you are, who just every now and then votes in a different way? Uh, Jake, the reality is they've never given me financial support. You've got to kind of build it out your own way. But going back to Uvalde, there were 21 innocent people that were killed. 19 of them were babies. And so I'm proud of the, my vote for the Safer's Community Act. If it was today, I would vote on it again the exact same way. I think there's a way for us to, to be conservative in our values and our principles. I mean, I'll give you an example. Right now, I have six children. My children, my younger children, they go to school with a bulletproof backpack. My oldest son, who's 18 years old in college, he not only does he have a bulletproof backpack, he carries a Glock around. This is the world that we live in. I don't want my children growing up in this. I don't think anyone does. So we have to find real tangible solutions that do not infringe upon the Constitution. I think we can accomplish that if people are bold and willing to stand up. I've always done that my whole life, spent 20 years in the military. This is no different. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, good to see you again, as always, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is laying out his agenda for Florida lawmakers that might have national implications. Stay with us. Uh, Returning to our politics lead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis delivered his State of the State address to the Florida legislature earlier today. It's a speech many see uh, as an audition to a possible run for the White House. CNN's Layla Santiago is at the Florida State Capitol in Tallahassee. Layla, tell us about the governor's to-do list. Yeah, it's a long to-do list, Jake. We certainly heard him sort of tally his uh, political victories in the state of the state address today, and it really kind of reflected what we've heard from him over the last few days as he's promoted his recently released book, and it also aligns with what we've seen from Republican lawmakers and the bills that they have filed here today being the first day of the legislative session. So let's take a look at those priorities that we've seen with the bills filed. They're calling for allowing for concealed carry without permits, uh, prohibiting abortions after six weeks with exceptions for rape or incest. That, by the way, was filed just minutes before DeSantis's state of the state began today. And then there's education, which has certainly become obvious. It is a very big priority on their platform uh, from banning, requiring teachers to use uh, students' preferred pronouns to, you know, expanding voucher programs. And and here's what I I thought was interesting. The very final words that he used, he said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Listen to another part of his speech today. We must continue our momentum with K-12 education by increasing teacher salaries, enacting a teacher's bill of rights, providing paycheck protection for teachers, expanding school choice, and fortifying parents' rights. Our schools must deliver a good education, not a political indoctrination. 
certainly hinting at what's to come in the state of Florida, possibly what's to come in a potential campaign that we might hear announced soon. We'll have to wait and see. Democrats saying this is all about fueling those culture wars. And what one Democrat told me was out-trumping Trump. Jake? All right, Leila Santiago in Tallahassee. Thanks so much. Still ahead, why the AstroTurf from an old stadium is raising new questions about what is in the turf that your kids play games on. Stay with us. In our sports lead, questions about a possible link between artificial grass made by Monsanto and brain cancer. This was discovered by a Philadelphia Inquirer investigations. Reporter looked into the deaths of six former baseball players for the Philadelphia Phillies, all of whom died of the same cancer at three times the average rate of men who did not work on that AstroTurf. Here to discuss is one of the reporters, David Gambacorda. David, tell us more about how you and your colleague uncovered this possible connection. Thanks, Jake. Um, So last year, David West, who was a former pitcher for the Phillies, became the sixth former member of the team to die from brain cancer. Um, So my colleague Barbara Laker and I got curious about whether there was a potential connection between these deaths. Um, We were able to track down pieces of the AstroTurf that covered the field of Veterans Stadium in the late 1970s and early 80s, and we had them tested by two different labs. Um, One of the labs found 16 different types of PFAS, which are uh, another name for forever chemicals. So the vet was also used by the the Philadelphia Eagles during the same time frame from the 70s until the early 2000s. It, It no longer exists. Obviously, Football players, the season, the number of games, et cetera, it's not remotely the same as, as baseball players in terms of a presence on the AstroTurf. But, it, but you've, have you found any similar diagnoses among for, former Eagles? No, we, we haven't come across any reports of this uh, with the Eagles. Um, but one thing we found with uh, the vet and the Phillies is that during the summer games, um, the turf would sometimes heat up to 165 degrees. And some of the experts that we've consulted with uh, explained that that would sort of allow some of the toxins in the turf to uh, release and become airborne. Um, so that's you know one one possible mode of uh, transmission that uh, that we considered. This is breaking my heart because while you're talking, we're showing pictures of Philadelphia Phillies like Tug McGraw and Dutch Dalton, players that you know I I grew up loving and who, who tragically died uh, of, of brain cancer. There he is after uh, they um, they beat the. Uh, uh, the Royals in 1980. Um, you, you can also find these uh, f- turn fields in parks and schools at all levels across the country. Now, now, obviously, we don't necessarily know if all of them have the same PFAs or these forever chemicals that were reportedly found at the vet. Um, but do you believe, do you hope your report will change the way communities look at using turf? Well, I think some of that's already happened. Um, there are communities in, in Massachusetts and Connecticut that have already implemented uh, moratoriums on new turf fields. Um, some states have uh, legislation pending that would actually ban outright uh, new turf fields. Um, Philadelphia still has quite a few, or at least a handful of turf fields in, in some of the neighborhoods in the city and uh, are looking at actually adding some new ones uh, to a city park. Um, I, but I think you know, simultaneously there's becoming, I think, an, an increasing amount of awareness around these chemicals uh, and the fact that they are linked to uh, a large number of very real human health risks. Um, so I, I think there's going to be a lot of conversation around uh, this, you know, artificial turf and, and how we use it and, you know, whether it's frankly a good idea to, to keep uh, to keep putting it in places where children are, are, are playing. Obviously, um, 
I'll, I'm going to tweet out the whole story so people can read it, including the, the responses you got from the various players, including Monsanto. A fascinating story. David Gambacorda of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Always good to see you. Say hi to all my friends up there in Philly. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts, all of them sitting there, just like a, like a ripe tomato. Our coverage continues now with Brianna Keeler, who is in for Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.